I was not interested in my gen ed intro to sociology class in college. So when I had to report on a classic essay titled Body Ritual Among the Nasarima, I paid very little attention to what I was reading. Who could blame me? My professor could. But the essay was about a strange tribe's disturbing customs concerning things like medicine men and holy waters and oral health. I was annoyed by the essay and by the class in general, and as I recall, I made it a point to sort of scoff at the absurdity and the unbelievability of the article. Imagine my surprise when my professor returned my graded report back to me, quite low if memory serves, with a curt note at the top, Nasarima is American spelled backwards. If I would have been paying attention, it would have been made abundantly clear that body ritual among the Nasarima was a classic uh, anthropological piece written to give a different perspective on our own American habits and behaviors and sort of rituals when it comes to going to the dentist and those sorts of things. But in my haste and in my indifference, I missed the point completely, and I certainly didn't learn anything. (laughs) But now we're full circle. I feel like I've learned something from that assignment now. In our text tonight, we see some people missing the point because they weren't really paying attention. The family of faith continues to crumble, sadly, after the birthright meltdown of chapter 27. We watch these characters grope around trying to find solutions to uh, the wreckage that they're walking amidst, and none of them stop to seek the Lord, not really. None of them pause to consider God's ways for living. And the results are predictably disappointing. And yet in the midst of the human failure, we once again see divine faithfulness. Because as Genesis has proved over and over again, our Lord will never cut and run, not with the patriarchs, not with us. No, He stays just as present, just as tender, just as gracious, showing us the way forward. And so the question is whether we are going to listen and follow or whether we're hoping God will just sign off on the plans that we make for ourselves. So let's look at Genesis 27, verse 46, which gives us the context for what we read. It says, So Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm sick of my life because of these Hethite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here, like these Hethite girls, what good is my life? Esau's wives, as we've seen before, they were trouble, to be sure. But that's not really the problem. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Genesis, but if you look just above, you see that what Rebecca is really worried about is the safety of her favorite son, Jacob. She's trying to find a way to get Jacob out of town until his brother's murderous rage cools off. Jacob had uh, deceptively taken the birthright, uh, which God had promised to him, but he had taken it from Isaac by uh, stealing the identity of his brother Esau. Uh, In response, Esau had been sort of telling people openly, as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. And so Rebecca's trying to find an escape route for her son. She uses the family tension of Esau and his wives in order to manipulate Isaac into sending Jacob somewhere far away. She wants, Jacob, uh, she wants Isaac to feel like it's his idea to send Jacob out of town. Christians are not to be manipulative people. We are not to manipulate others, even if we think the goal is good. 
not in ministry, not in family, not in friendship, not in business. God has commanded us as His people to be defined by certain things, right? They will know we are Christians by our love, right? He wants us to be defined by certain characteristics that are identifiable to one another and to the world around us. Love is one of them. Truthfulness is a big one. We are to be defined by truthfulness. And the New Testament talks about how we as individual Christians should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and that, in fact, we should think of others as more important than ourselves. If you think the people around you are more important than you are, then you don't manipulate them. You don't try to kind of trick them into doing what you want them to do. The selfish deceptiveness of manipulation is simply not consistent with new life in Christ. That's part of the old nature where we're always sort of jockeying and pivoting and, 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 and moving around trying to get our own way, trying to advantage ourselves in some ways. But new life in Christ is, is meant to be defined by other characteristics, unity and peace and love and generosity and truthfulness and, and these sorts of things that we read so much about in the Bible. Now, there's an irony here, a sad one. Rebecca uses the wife strife as a pretext to get Jacob away. Let's get Jacob somewhere safe, right? Where does he end up? Well, he ends up in a situation where there are not two angry wives, but four angry wives who become rivals and make family life very hard for a very long time. We'll get there as, you know, Jacob ends up having two wives and and two concubines, and it's this big, messy family where everybody's mad at each other all the time, leading to the sons all deciding they want to murder the one of their brothers. And so, uh, man, this family that is not walking with the Lord in faith at this point, they are going to keep sowing this deception, sowing this rivalry, sowing uh, murderous jealousy, and they're going to start reaping it as well, and it's a sad thing. Rebecca is worried about losing her son, right? She had said in the previous passage, hey, he wants to kill you. I wouldn't be able to bear losing both of my sons in a single day because she's saying, I don't want to lose you, Jacob, to murder because you're my favorite son. And the implication is that if Esau murdered Jacob like he said he was going to, he would be executed uh, because of, of that offense. So she says, I can't I can't bear to lose my son, but her plan to save him is going to cost her dearly. In order to save him, she's going to end up losing him. She wouldn't live long enough to ever see Jacob again. They would never see each other again after this point. Verse 1 of chapter 28, so Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother." Uh, It's hard to know for sure. I sense a little bit of a coldness here in the way that Isaac is speaking to Jacob. We already know because the laundry has been aired out for us that Esau is Isaac's favored son. Jacob is Rebekah's favored son. They've got a lot of problems going on here. And so I sense a bit of a coldness here. He summons Jacob. Uh, When he sends Jacob away, he sends him alone. No servants, no attendants, no escort, no guards to help him on his journey. And it's a long journey. 
you know, when Rebecca left her home to come become the wife of Isaac, she comes with maidservants, and, and, and she comes with the uh, servants of Abraham guarding them and guiding them and all this. And that would be a normal thing to go with a retinue, to go with a, a sort of entourage. Remember, this is a very powerful, very influential, very wealthy family, hundreds and hundreds of household servants, right? A lot of them trained for battle, a lot of, some of them who have taken this journey before, and Isaac sends Jacob out alone, sends him out with, with some resources, sure, but he sends him out alone by himself. Why hadn't Isaac provided a wife for Jacob yet? Back when Abraham was nearing the end of his life, he had a, a, an urgent concern that his son would find the wife that the Lord intended for him and that he would marry well. It was a very, we saw, that was the, the capstone of Abraham's great life of faith. This was a great, urgent concern to him. And he was too old to take the trip to himself. So he brought the, the servant in who managed his household. And he says, swear to me, swear to me that no matter what you do, you help accomplish this goal for me. And it's a great, wonderful story, one of the best stories in all of Genesis. But Isaac here, we see none of that urgency, none of that concern. He demonstrates a physical and a spiritual apathy toward this significant issue. Remember, all of the promises uh, that God has been delivering through this family, dating back to Adam and Eve, talking about this, this world-impacting plan that God was working out to bring the seed that would roll back the effects of sin and solve all of these problems, right? It was all dependent upon families. It was all dependent upon on husbands and wives and children and, and the perpetuation of a specific family. And here's Isaac. He knows from the Lord that it's not going to be Esau through whom the Messiah would come. No, all of the promises were for Jacob, and yet Isaac shows almost no concern toward getting his son Jacob a wife. And remember, Jacob's about 70 years old at this point. He's no young man. And so what's going on here? And it's sad. He doesn't say, hey, go find the wife the Lord has consecrated for you. No, he says, go marry one of Laban's daughters. Were they monotheists? Were they women of godly character? None of that seemed to matter to Isaac. They were just sort of boilerplate acceptable to him, right? Just not Hethites, just not Canaanites. Uh, talk about settling. He, he didn't care about, hey, this is the, the great providential plan of God for you. He just said, you just go and, and check this box and find one of these girls over there. We don't know anything about them. We don't know if they'll want to be your wife. We don't know if they worship the God of heaven. We don't know any of that, but just go ahead and go marry one of them. Isaac, of all people, should have known that God has a providential concern for who we marry and if we marry. That had been made very clear through the way that Isaac ended up with Rebecca. When we were in that passage a number of weeks ago, it was a a magnificent tale of providence and of God's tender, careful, meticulous concern for our lives. And for those of you that the Lord is going to lead to be married, the New Testament's clear. It's not better to be married, better to be unmarried. Paul says, hey, some people are given the gift of celibacy. Some people are not. It's God's business whether He wants you to be married or not. And if He does, he has a specific person in mind for you. 
He had a specific person in mind for Isaac. He had a specific person in mind for all of these other characters as we… He had a specific person in mind for Adam, right? He has a specific person in mind for you. Don't just find some boilerplate person that seems to fit the bill and check the box and say, well, this is who I marry. Uh, Follow the Lord and see how the Lord will lead you to that person. And Isaac should have known better, but he had slipped… As we've seen the last few passages, he had slipped into a manly mindset rather than a godly mindset. And so he was living life on the level of good enough rather than God abundant. And we don't want to live that way. Verse 3, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Pedan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. It's significant that the promise of blessing is repeated this time, not behind closed doors. Remember last time we saw Isaac was trying to pull a fast one on everybody too. He was trying to sneak the blessing to Esau, uh, but that didn't happen. And so this time it's in full view. No one's wearing any goat costumes, anything like that. No one in the future could possibly suggest that the covenant didn't really, truly, rightfully belong to Jacob. We notice that Isaac did not seek the Lord in this scene. He invoked the Lord, but he did not seek Him. No offering, no worship. Instead, he falls back on what had been said to him before, that same promise. And you know what? We should remind ourselves of what God has already spoken. That's why we are so passionate about studying God's Word systematically here at Calvary. But we notice, you know, we have to come to the conclusion, I think, that Isaac is in a a period of real spiritual lethargy. Uh, He's not hearing from the Lord. He's not communicating with the Lord. He's not praising the Lord. He's not calling on the Lord. Just like, what did they say before? Okay, let me say that to you. But even in his lethargy, a problem is revealed. Here's what Isaac says. Jacob, God has an amazing, fantastic, unbreakable promise for you. He wants you in this land, so go ahead and leave this land. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. These are bad solutions. They're bad solutions because they're human solutions. They're not godly solutions. Often Christians make decisions in life and say that God is leading them, but when you stop and evaluate what they're doing, it's not consistent at all with what God has said or principles God has laid out. Rather than leading, it's, it's that we want something or we're trying to solve some problem, and we assume that as long as we think it's a good idea and it's not overt, clear sin, then God must think it's a good idea too. God had told Abraham, stay in the land. Abraham had told his servant, don't let Isaac leave the land no matter what you do. God had told Isaac, stay in the land, don't go to Egypt. So now what does Isaac say to his son, the one through whom the promises were going to come? Go ahead and leave the land. It's completely inconsistent with how God had been leading this family for many, many decades. Not only did Isaac send Jacob with no retinue, no escort, no guard, he sent him with no warning about what sort of trouble he might encounter in Laban's house. Rebecca's Laban's brother. She knows what sort of man he is. He's not a good man. He's not a man of integrity. He's not a godly man. He's not a monotheist. He's none of those things. Now, we may have some sort of Esau problem right in front of us that is concerning us, and we think, oh, I got to make these moves so that that the Esau in front of me doesn't get me. 
Uh, you know, this Esau problem is causing me stress. It's all this pressure, and this is all I can see. It's right here clouding my vision. Okay, I, that's real, but remember, there are dangers other than Esau out there. There are problems other than Esau out there. And when you pivot to get around Esau outside of the plan of God, you might encounter a Laban, which is his own set of problems for like 20 years, right? Where you're going to slave for Laban instead of just, what, what, what should they have done? Go to the Lord and petition the Lord and seek the Lord and say, Lord, we have this really mangled up family problem. What should we do? You think the Lord can't solve their family drama? Of course he could have but no one was interested in asking his opinion. Verse 6, Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Padan Aram. And Esau realized that his father, Isaac, disapproved of the Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married. In addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nebaioth. Oh, Esau, this poor guy. I mean, we don't really feel bad for him. He's a bum, but, but he, he's a sad character. He wants approval. He wants to enjoy the benefits of, of, of God's blessing on his life, and yet he consistently refuses to go God's way. He, he refuses to do what God actually requires. He doesn't humble himself. He doesn't repent of his sin. He doesn't accept God's calling on his life and say, okay, I wasn't the one through whom all the promises are going to come, but I still have a place in your will, and so, you know, here I am, Lord. He doesn't do any of that. He just thinks, oh, you want me to marry a cousin, and then I get blessed? Yeah, I can do that. Find me a cousin. And effectively, that's what he does. I'll, I'll find a cousin if that earns me a blessing. He just wants this material blessing that he was crying about, crying in his, his soup about last, last passage. I want my blessing. Do you have a blessing for me too, my father? Like he wants, he wants to line his pockets with material blessing. And here we see, he says, hmm, he blessed him and he said, go marry your cousin. Well, I've got other cousins. I'll go marry one and then I'll get a blessing. Bible commentator Derek Kidner points out that Esau's attempt to gain favor through marriage here uh, just marriage to an uncle's daughter. He thinks that's all that is necessary. He says it's exactly like every religious effort that human beings interact in. Okay, I'll go and do something, and that will earn me a blessing from the Father, and I will perform an action to purchase my place, and I won't actually listen to what God says. I won't actually put away my sin and my selfishness. I won't actually submit myself to what he actually asked me individually to do. But I jumped through this hoop. Of course, it's a hoop that I designed for myself. But I jumped through this hoop, and therefore, God now owes me some sort of blessing. God now owes me some sort of standing. God now owes me some sort of position because, after all, look what I did. That's religion. And that's what Esau is doing here too. But religion, like Esau's marriage here, it's just a counterfeit currency. It's not worth anything. Jacob goes to Laban. And so Esau says, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll go to another uncle. I'll go to Ishmael, the anti-uncle. You've heard of the antichrist. He's the anti-uncle. So I'm going to go to the anti-uncle. Ishmael had already been driven out from the family of faith. He had already been disqualified in God's eyes. But Esau thought, well, it's the act of marrying within the family that matters. And so as long as I do that, I get what I want. But that's not the deal. 
from the beginning and still through to our time today, the deal is our heart surrendered to the Lord God of glory and submitted to him and being willing to do what he asks. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place and he put it there at his head and he lay down in that place. Jacob would travel 500 miles alone. And you know, it seems like he was pretty oblivious as he goes. He knows the danger behind him for sure, but he's oblivious to the danger that's waiting ahead. Bruce Waltke notes that he may not realize it, but Jacob was between a death camp and a labor camp. Probably should have just stayed at Bethel, but uh, he's also oblivious to the fact that the Lord is with him. He's going to say as much. He's going to say, oh, I didn't know the Lord was around. That's cool. He doesn't know that the Lord is with him. Uh, He doesn't even seem to realize that he is camping in a place that was very significant to his grandfather, Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 13, this spot, Bethel, very important place in the life of Abraham where he communed with God. But that's not why Jacob stopped there. He's oblivious to that. He stops in Bethel, not because of its history, not because he might have an encounter with the living God there. He stops there because he was out of daylight. And so he sets up a makeshift camp. We're fond of saying, and probably you've heard that Jacob used this stone as a pillow, but you know, that might not be it after all. What, what, what have we been told about Jacob? We haven't been given a lot of description about him, but the description we have been given by Moses is that he was a very civilized man who stayed in the comfort of the tents. Are we to think that he set out on a 500-mile trip and didn't pack a pillow? That he didn't pack something to lay his head on? that this was the first night that he was like, oh, I guess I have to sleep somewhere. Let me put my head on this rock. In fact, some scholars believe that it's it's possible that Jacob wasn't using this stone as a pillow, rather that he was setting it up as some sort of weird pagan rabbit's foot to keep him safe as he slept out in the open. It's not great, but but that's definitely a possibility. Verse 12, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. Translators struggle with the word translated here as stairway, or your version may say ladder. It's a unique Hebrew word used only here in the Old Testament. Some call it a ramp. Others believe it's meant to be a ziggurat. Interesting. What it looked like isn't really the point. The point was the function. This was something that was sent down from heaven to earth as a way that God might accomplish a great deal of interaction and work through the efforts of angels, and we'll see through God himself. That's the point. Now, much more importantly for us, in the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ would specifically say that he is the stairway. He's like, I'm Jacob's ladder. That is an image of me. And so put together, this vision reveals some very important truths to us about humans relate to God. We cannot build a ladder or a ziggurat of our own from earth to heaven. That's exactly what the Babylonians tried to do in Genesis chapter 11, and God wasn't having any of that. No, God has on his own, by his grace, established a way that we can interact with him, and he has sent it down from heaven. That way is Christ himself, the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. By Christ, we have access. By Christ, heaven is opened. 
There is no other avenue. There is no back alley. There's no secret port through which a person can access eternal life. We must take the ladder brought down from heaven by God, and that ladder is Christ. No other way. And He did it all. We didn't build half. We did not meet Him halfway. We didn't contribute anything to the building project. We didn't donate anything to any fund. We didn't invite Him. We didn't do any of those things. God, out of His love and out of His grace and out of His kindness and out of His affection for us, said, I will do it for you. I will make the way so that you can commune with me and so that I can deal with your sin and so that ultimately you can be transported from earth to heaven for eternity. But there's only one way that this can happen, and it's my way, the way, Jesus Christ. God is exclusive, but he's always willing to add people to the guest list, right? There's what we say, there's always room for one more, and that's true. We see that incredible interaction of Jesus with the thief on the cross, a man who had moments earlier been reviling Christ and and blaspheming Him next to Him there, uh, you know, on on a second cross, a man who was a murderer and who who finally looked back and he said, yeah, it's right that we're being butchered by, by the Roman government for our crimes. And then he realized, oh, man. Lord, I'm sorry. You're the Lord of salvation. Will you remember me when you're in glory? And Jesus said, absolutely. I'll put you on the guest list right now. You're going to be with me in paradise today. That's the kind of God we serve. But he didn't say, well, since you're sorry, you're in. He didn't say, well, since the guy on the other side of me is worse than you, you're in. There's only one way, and that is through the salvation offered, the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. And there's no other way. That's the image that we're being given here with the ladder. At Babel, we watched as men tried to bypass God, right? They said, we don't need this Adam God, Adam's God person that, you know, he's been talking to us about. We're going to build our own ziggurat. We're going to build our own stairway into heaven. And we're going to play this like sick electric guitar solo when we get up there. (laughs) So at at Babel, we watched as men tried to bypass God. At Bethel, we watch as God works to join men, that he does it all himself. Verse 13, the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God's grace is incredible. As far as the record of Genesis goes, Jacob had never pledged himself to God. He had never built him an altar, never brought him a sacrifice. But God loved Jacob and kept reaching out to him. God included him and revealed himself to Jacob. It's an incredible portrait of grace. In his speech, the Lord shows how different he is than the pagan gods men love to worship. Back then, it was believed that gods were limited by geography. They were territorial gods. Sort of think of Poseidon, the god of the sea, right? We're kind of familiar with that idea. There, in Second, you know, First Kings 20, there's a funny moment where the enemies of Israel, the Arameans, as it happens, they say, okay, they have a meeting. They're going to fight with Israel. And they say, hmm, 
And I think their God is a God of the hills, right? So if we fight them in the valley, their God won't be able to help them. And then the next day, 100,000 Aramean soldiers were dead on the battlefield, right? Because God is not territorial. God goes anywhere we go. He's with us wherever we go. There's no place that we can go that God is not with us. The psalmist is very clear on that. Now, even though that's true, that doesn't mean every place we go is equally good for us. Jonah can testify to that fact. God was with him uh, in Tarshish and Nineveh and in the belly of the whale. Which place do you think he wanted to be? I don't think he was like, it's all the same. I think you want to be where God wants you to be. There's nowhere we can go where the Lord cannot reach us with his presence. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid, and he said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Some commentators feel that this is actually a great, you know, prayer of praise. Uh, maybe. I, I have a hard time getting there personally. God's revelation to Jacob was all about himself, his presence, and his withness. And what does Jacob keep talking about here? He keeps talking about the place. Listen, Bethel wasn't the house of God. Bethel wasn't the gate of heaven. That wasn't the point. The point was that God was with Jacob. He's like, no, I'm, I'm with you. The reason you're seeing me at Bethel is because you stopped at Bethel. If you would have stopped over here, we probably would have had this same interaction. And so Jacob's like, oh, this place, this place, this place. And, and the Lord is like, no, 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 I'm with you. I'm going with you wherever you go. I'm going to walk with you here, there, and everywhere. J. Vernon McGee reminds us that Jacob is not a man on pilgrimage here. He's on the run. He's on the run from his brother, and frankly, he's on the run from God too. When we think about what God was trying to communicate to Jacob, we have to conclude that he missed the point. Perhaps that's why he was afraid rather than comforted. Oh, no, man, God's here. I didn't realize it. I was and it says he was afraid. Verse 18, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head, and he set it up as a marker, poured oil on top of it, named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Now, here we start to see maybe some embers of belief. Had the stone been a good luck charm the night before, it's possible, but now he's setting it up as a reminder that the God of his fathers was real and alive and present. By pouring oil, he was consecrating that place. But notice, Jacob says, God revealed himself to me He said, this place must be God's house. He said, this place is the very gate of heaven. And then he packs his bags and hits the road. If you thought that this campus was the gate of heaven and that you could have a vision of the living God here if you stayed here tonight, if you really thought that, would you just leave and go home and be like, we've got to see what the news has on tonight? I hope not. But Jacob is just like, wow, this is, you know, God's house, and this is the gate of heaven. Time to go. But before he goes, he gives a little speech. Verse 20, Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. God in his grace had said, I will, I will, I will to Jacob. And Jacob responds back, if you, if you, if you, if you keep me safe, oh, and bring me back, oh, and give me food and clothing, oh, and give me some pocket change, then you can be my God. 
wow. And he says, I'll offer something back to you as long as you first give me a bunch beforehand. You give me 100% and I'll give you 10% back. Wow. God spoke in a profound way to this man, and it seems like his response was, we'll see. Now I'll be on my way. I've got business to take care of. Compare his reaction to those of Abraham back when God spoke to Abraham. And remember, God spoke to Abraham. They were friends, best friends. Abraham certainly wasn't perfect. We've seen that. But he had faith, and he believed God, and he submitted himself to God's revelation. When God spoke to him in Genesis 17, Abraham fell face down in worship right then and there. When God made promises Abraham couldn't understand, he would sometimes ask a question like, how can I know? Please help me to understand. But then he would still move in obedience. Uh, Abraham wouldn't pack up and just go wherever he wanted. He packed up when the Lord told him to go somewhere. When God spoke, Abraham listened, and he oriented his life around those words, even though they must have seemed crazy to the people around him. He wasn't demanding food and clothing from the Lord. Man, when he went and talked to the king of Sodom, he says, I don't want a single thread. I don't want a single sandal strap from you because I want to make sure that my relationship to God is pristine and pure, and I don't want anybody to think that my relationship to this God that none of you know has anything to do with whether I'm wealthy or not. Such a difference. Jacob, he's not following the Lord yet. He's not a pilgrim yet. He's going his own way, and it's going to be a bumpy ride. When we miss the point of what God has said to us, it leads us invariably to mistakes, to disappointment, even to disaster. God speaks with purpose, and He also has specific purposes for your life. A major theme of the book of Genesis so far has been that when we go our own way, making decisions that we think are good but do not include God, the results are just terrible often deadly. Going God's way is the way that leads to life. Adam and Eve went another way. The result was ruin. Noah went God's way. The result was life. Whether it's Cain and Abel, Shem and Ham, Abraham or Lot, these, all of these different characters, we see these depictions of people either choosing to listen to God's word and go his way submissively or to go their own way and invariably bring themselves and their families and their communities to ruin. God is not just along for the ride that you want to go on in life. He is master. He is maker. He is king. He is decider. He is also friend and helper and savior and the source of all wisdom. And so look at it this way. Wouldn't you rather be Abraham in Genesis 22 than Jacob in Genesis 28? We would. All of us would. What's the difference? It's not God. God's not different in those two passages. It's not His grace. The difference is between the people. One trusted God enough to follow Him no matter the cost. The other thinks He's got a handle on how to navigate life. And so let's walk with God instead of wrestling with Him.